You're listening to Ambe, a year of Indigenous reading. I, I do, just doing a lot of thinking about where Indigenous literatures are today, you know, the voices who are held up and, you know, challenges about some voices that have been held up who shouldn't have been. Um, but also, you know, all of the other writers who are coming of age and, and whose work is coming out. And, and so many of you just can't keep up. And it's, it's nice not to have tried to be comprehensive because already it would be so out of date. Um, but I think for me, one thing I'm really pleased about is that the conversation is still going and it's going at such a remarkable pace and really awesome, courageous voices, not just new writers, but established writers um, who I think are getting renewed attention and much deserved renewed attention. I think for a long time, a lot of the established writers um, in this country and in, in the States and in other places were kind of pushed to the side and I think that there's been a lot more um, interest in listening to the writers who actually were the ones who have carried this work forward for so long um, and often under really challenging and stressful circumstances. So if, any, if, if anything, I just think I'm more excited about where the field is going. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm very happy to be part of that, but I think now it's time for other people to to really um to really take those conversations forward i think i've done my part and i'll still be part of the conversations as best i can but um it's nice to have this book out and it's nice to know that there are some ways in which it's already obsolete i just i just really like it and i went through and i went through with all kinds of highlighter and my sticky notes and stuff so that we can so that we, we can talk about uh, different different parts of the different parts of the book. One of the things when you talked about being human, and one of the things that I kind of want to hear from from everybody about, you talk you contrast Euro Western individualism with the humanity that exists in the relationships between us, and I, I've heard a few people over the last couple of years talking about that, about how our humanity exists in that space in between us and, and contrasting that with, you know, kind of the hyper-individualism of colonial people, you know, settler colonialism. So does anybody have any thoughts or observations on what it means to be human, how we become human? Don't all jump in at once, guys. Joy, you're smiling. What are you thinking? <laughs> Okay, I was just thinking I'll go first just to kind of break the ice. <laughs> so I, just, I, I don't know, I'm kind of thinking actually just like a very recent example is with COVID itself. And you have all these people who are like, I'm not wearing a mask, right? And so, and I remember when this happened, when it started first breaking out here and my partner who is from Taiwan and Chinese was wearing a mask and he was afraid to wear a mask, of course, right? But it's like, this is what we have to do, right? He's like, he's going, he's going out there at personal risk to protect others because he knew he wasn't sick right and so and I just I cannot even begin to really fathom people who don't want to wear a mask like it's like and they always say I'm not sick I'm not sick I'm like it doesn't matter like you're protecting others like I just for me I have a hard time not understanding um I guess they're 
relationship and responsibility that we have to others and not just people but animals and plants and you know it's even exaggerated in my world a bit because when I'm playing a video game and I have to chop down a tree I feel guilty I feel horrible I'm like oh my gosh should I ask this tree permission I'm like holy and my partner laughs at me he's like you realize they are bits right I'm like I know but you know it's so programmed into me and I would love it and I see it programmed into other people for sure right but I would love it to become more wider more widely programmed that like you know we need to start thinking about our existence um, as a human and our humanity that goes just beyond our little individual sphere sphere (laughs) that is joy or does patty or as daniel sort of thing so and with that I'm going to stop talking let someone else take over (laughs) Um, would you mind if I had a say? I just read, but um, I had, I was, you know, I always think about, uh, if we're talking about relationship and, you know, maintaining humanity within our relationships, I always kind of think, and, it's, and maybe it is because, you know, I'm a radio enthusiast. I, I think about people as radios. We are, we are transmitters and we are also receivers like, like radios. And in relationships, there's always that negotiation uh, that goes on between receiving and transmitting um, who gets to do what and how much of that and so on and so forth. But and also I'm glad, Joy, that you brought up our relationship with, um, you know, other other beings like the animals and the plants and, you know, um, and then I always think about um, uh, in terms of relationship, we always think that it's it's an outside thing. Like, you know, we talk about outer space and we don't realize that we're we're also in outer space, like as a globe, as a world. Um, so that relationship, you know, of course, has to has to first, you know, get it, you get yourself right in your own relationship with yourself, um, which, you know, it's 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 it takes your whole life, uh, you know, it, getting it right. I'm not sure if that's the right word to use, but um, just in terms of, you know, internalizing uh, these questions, you know, these these questions that we ask of, of, uh, of others, of the community, of, you know, our society, these, these questions we ask outside of ourselves. Um, maybe we just need to, you know, spend a little bit more time asking those things within ourselves. And yes, again, back to joy, of course, COVID is a perfect time, uh, you know, kind of affords ourselves more time to do to do those exact things. And that's it. That's what I've got to say. Robin, I know you do some work with your students in terms of building relation, you know, helping them build relationships amongst themselves and with the Indigenous community. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't know, what you may have reflected on as you read the book and thinking about the work that you do? Um, first off, I'm really nervous about this. This is my first time doing something like this. So I'll just, I'll just say that. And um, uh, I don't know, in terms of like the water ceremonies and things like that, is that what you Because as being human, we exist, you know, we're existing in that space and those, you know, the expectations that other people have on us and our obligations maybe that we have in terms of our relationship. And yeah, I mean, the water ceremony is an example because you're teaching them to develop a relationship with water, thinking about their obligations in the context mm-hmm. so I was wondering if, as you read the chapter if you had any thoughts about the work that you were doing with the students um well and i also teach environmental science so i think um we we have done a lot of of talk about our relationship with 
uh, the natural world and, and not just amongst each other, but how, you know, you need to care for and, and care about other beings. Um, and I think that that relationship building is an important, an important piece. I've got a bug here that's trying to build a relationship with me and I'm not having it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know what kind of bug it is. It's a little bit different, but uh, he wants to, he wants, he wants to get in on this conversation. Daniel, you reference a book, a, a story, which I've actually ordered. That's one of the books that I've ordered as a result of rereading this. Um, that's set, oh, and, and I'm just spacing on the name of it, but it's set in the, in uh, Dakota country. Can you talk about Oh, Water Lily. Yeah, Water Lily. That's the Water Lily. Yeah. Ella flower, because I knew it was a W. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the picture that that creates, that your example created there. It's, it's a really extraordinary novel. Um, and Deloria was an anthropologist as well as a writer. Um, you know, one of the very few women anthropologists of her time and also one of the very few indigenous anthropologists. And so um, I think she, she brought a, a, a lens on humanity. She, she tried to get as much as possible into, into the ways in which our relationships are what make us human um, and, and how that was so deeply grounded in culture, in language, but also in land. Um, and it's set at a time just before the real onslaught of um, uh, white invasion into Dakota territory. And I first encountered that book in a history course when I was a graduate student, uh, an indigenous historian, uh, Susan Miller, who's seminal, uh, taught it in her in her history course. And a lot of the history students were very like, well, why are we reading a novel? Um, and she was really insistent that, you know, fiction is not, it doesn't have to be seen as something kind of antithetical to history, but actually it was a way of, of living history in the moment. So I think that that novel still, every time I read it, it's just so rich with details but all of those details are about uh they're about culture they're about custom and about how fully embedded people are through their relationships with culture and language um it also brings up a lot of grief for those of us who weren't raised in our in, in you know in, in the the cradle of of our cultures with our languages and so it, it's a really interesting experience to see ways in which, you know, a lot of us are very, very far removed from somebody like Water Lily, from, you know, who, who is so embedded in that community. Um, but it's, it's a novel I think everybody should read. I think it, it's beautiful, it's quite funny, um, it's quite heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, it's a novel that not a lot of people have read um, in the field, and I think that's a real shame. Well, I'll put it in the um, July and August fiction fiction list. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll do yeah, I'll do that. Um, and when I went, had a workshop with Maya uh, Chakabi, and she had said Anishinaabe, um, it, it's not a noun; it's a verb. And so when we talk about oh, Ishkaya, why don't you talk about it then instead of me? Because I talk too much. Well, um. 
Yeah, so I also am really nervous because I haven't also done panels like this very often. So I'm, I'm right there with you, Robin. Um, yeah, so when, when I think about Anishinaabe Mwen, and, and I'm, you know, as, as both a learner and as a teacher, um, and I, I taught Anishinaabe Mwen for 13 years um, before I became uh, a consultant of Indigenous education. So I, I kind of help, help people get to doing some of this stuff in their classes. And um, Anishinaabemwin is, depending on who you're talking to, is between like 80 to 99% verbs. We are, we are interrelationships. We, um, everything is, is either motion or acted upon or is, act, is acting upon. Like there's no, uh, you actually have to nounify verbs in order to create nouns, right? Nothing is ever static. Things I was actually listening to, my partner is in my role now as the uh, Anishinaabe Mwen teacher. And he was talking to his students today online, which everyone is, is hating the most because you can't interact like human beings, right? Um, and so he's, he was teaching his kids today and he was talking to them about colors and how to, how to describe that something is colored. And in Anishinaabemwin, um, there's either an animate or an inanimate way of talking about that, but you're actually talking about it being in that way. It's, it's, not, it's not a static thing. So if something is, is blue colored, it's being blue colored. It's showing itself kind of to be blue, right? Um, and it was interesting because, uh, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to do um, some immersion language programs. And if you, though, for those of you who are out there um, who are, are language learners and are interested in, uh, in doing that, um, the Eshkenishnabamjig language program for second language learners, those like middle ground people, because there's lots for like the beginning learners and there's a whole lot for, you know, well, I mean, there's fluent speakers can speak to each other back and forth, but that kind of middle ground, there's not a whole lot. And uh, anyway, so I was, when I was over there and I started, I started thinking in the language, which is not something I'm very good at. Um, but it was really cool. Cause I almost started seeing like, in like, I mean, we see in three dimensions, but I started like really seeing, I don't know if I'm making any sense or if I'm just kind of blathering on but um, I think sometimes when you think in a verb-based language you start to think in three dimensions like things stop seeing being so flat um, yeah anyway that's it for me well and you're thinking in terms of relationship yeah you that's you, you can't not, not the chair is not a thing it's the thing that I sit it's something that I sit on so you're you're yes. The language itself is constantly pulling you into into relationship and into like uh, Maya talks about Anishinaabe meaning it doesn't just mean original person it means humans being it's yes we are action so not yes. in their language but we aren't we aren't humans the thing you know being acted upon we, we are action 
and I just we are it. always action absolutely I mean and especially toddlers um yeah but I just thought that was really <laughs> interesting in the context in the context of the, this chapter and what you know Daniel had been talking about in relationships because if we're action we're constantly you know acting upon others and they're acting upon us which brings us to being good relatives um mm -hmm. because we talk a lot about being claimed or you know you know, claiming and being claimed. Um, but that's really only the first, you know, the first step of that. And, and Daniel kind of continues on with, well, then if we're being claimed or if we are claiming, what do these relationships ask of us? And he does talk about um, non-human relatives and the importance of reweaving these bonds that colonialism worked so, so hard to destroy. Um, so who would like to, who had some observations or thoughts on what it means to be good relatives, especially, oof, we've got the reconciliation, but not the truth. <laughs> and that's part of being good relatives, right? Alexa Shotwell, we talked with her a number of weeks ago. Um, she's working right now on what it means to claim bad kin, you know, as a white woman who claims her. And then she realized that those white supremacists that stormed the Capitol, that's who claims her. She doesn't claim them back, but they claim her. And they, you know, appear to act, you know, they claim to be acting on behalf of whiteness. Um, and part of white privilege means that when you go to stores or, you know, when you interact with the police, you're, you're claimed by, you're claimed by power, whether or not you claim it back. And so her work right now is, well, what do I do with that? Because that's what she's thinking through what does that relationship ask of her so i don't i don't want to get too much into that it's just an interesting observation that that's kind of what her work is it's what do these so we're in relationship but then what are these claims how do we how do we act on those claims so neil i'm going to bring you in because i think you're the only one who hasn't said anything yet so as we think about relationships my friend of 25 years <laughs> who I've only met once That's right. <laughs> all online um, and the changes huh um, now I I, I kind of want to go back to story a little bit uh, and a little bit of what I think Joy was saying about the uh, the pandemic and the stories that we tell ourselves that lead us to the actions that we take um, and so, you know, I, I wonder about what stories these uh, anti-maskers are, are saying, are telling themselves that makes them think they're going to be okay. And some of them are very religious stories. Uh, I, I had an interaction with someone on, on Facebook who, uh, well, a couple of similar ones, but one in particular, someone was quoting the very psalm that um, you know, God will lift you up and, and not let your foot be dashed against the stone or whatever. The, I'm paraphrasing wildly, but the um, and I said, oh, you mean the very same psalm that the devil quoted to Jesus in the wilderness? Um, do you know which role you're playing here now? <laughs> yeah. Um, I say you're 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 temp you, you know, and Jesus answers we don't put God to the test and uh, but to her that wasn't putting God to the test that was that was trusting God, 
Um, and so, you know, what stories we tell ourselves that lead us into destructive behavior uh, is, is fascinating. And I don't have anything more profound to say about it than that. But, uh, it, it, yeah, it, you know, I, we go back, you know, when some, somebody was talking about story and the world is made of stories and that's part of what makes us human. Of course, I think of um, the Jewish American uh, poet, Muriel Rukeyser, who has this famous line about the world is not made of atoms, but of stories. Uh, and the stories are relational and they tell, they explain things, but they also, um, I think Daniel mentions there, there are good stories and bad stories. There are stories that divide us as well. Um, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm babbling now, but that, that those are sort of the things bouncing around in my head. I, I was telling Patty last night, right now, pandemic brain is just a bunch of balls bouncing around. Um, but those are some of my unconnected thoughts. But could I actually jump in on, on that? Because I think it that issue of of story and how story can be weaponized for you know really wicked ends, but so can claims to relationship, right? And I think for me that's that's one thing I've been more attentive to over the last few years is the ways in which people, you know, for maybe for honest mistakes or you know for for malevolent purpose like even kinship can be weaponized against us you know this idea that you know um i'm going to claim you as a relative and you are you are obligated to do all of these things for me but not really thinking about how an insistence on being related without other people having some consent in that um can be really that can be a really wicked exercise of of oppressive purpose as well, um, and those you know those stories you know stories that are are false or stories that are um, partial or stories that are misshapen um, can be really dangerous. And so I think there's more and more I do think about the ethical import of the stories, um, and you know all the way across from you know our relationships who we are, how we came to be, it's not just as easy as, as making an assertion or telling a story, but taking accountability for what the impacts are of that story as best we can. Yes, um, I wanted to kind of get back to um, the idea of you know negotiating. Um, when we're in negotiation in, in terms of, you know, having relationships with each other and uh, the constant negotiation uh, that occurs in terms of communication and things like that. I mean, it really does take skilled communication to have effective relationships. It really does. And um, my understanding, it's been my experience that, you know, uh, the majority of the world's problems do are rooted in in people's inability to communicate clearly effectively and and maybe to some degree kindly and i like the fact that patty that you're that you know you're not posing the question how do we get back to being good humans but just getting back to being humans and you know i think that um we get caught up in um 
again, outside sources telling us who we are. And those outside sources oftentimes are not rooted in human, uh, humanistic way of being. Um, and, uh, you know, institutions, for example, I'm not going to start bashing on academia, but, uh, you know, just, you know, institutions, they, they don't necessarily have a very humanistic way of operating. And as such, you know, an Indigenous student who enters into any kind of institution such as that always finds themselves in a, in a, in a, um, a, 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 a activity of resistance. Uh, on a daily basis, and again, that ne that negotiation that takes place again on a daily basis, uh, just you know, for entering into those kind of ar arenas, um, you know, ha having to have a to kind of constantly remind yourself, uh, you know, it is it, what I'm hearing. Is that true? Is that true to me? Do I? Is that my truth? Is that, you know? And then um, the idea of uh, I think there was. Um, a word I was watching you know, this contentious question. I was watching one of Daniel's uh, YouTube interviews, and there was the, the, this idea of this contentious question of who gets to tell stories. And we we're talking about stories, Neil. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think it's that contentious. <laughs> I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, who gets to tell what stories? You know, um, there was, of course, when this whole like uh, conversation about appropriation started to kind of bubble up, and that was that's quite so many years ago now. Um, you know, coming into the fold as a writer myself, I was part of those conversations, and it was so wonderful in Saskatchewan. And I hate the fact that I can't remember this 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 elder elderly man's name uh, from from one of the nations out there on the prairies. Uh, but you know, he kind of put it out plainly and he said, look, if, if you weren't there and it didn't happen to you, then you don't get to tell the story. <laughs> And and that is that is you know of course an oversimplification of of of, of the idea of you know ownership and um, uh, ha having authority over your own voice and and things like that. Um, and I remember and I'll just add this one little story too is like when I was in Campbell River at a, a writers festival, um, you know that this writers festival in in uh, in uh, Kwakwakwak territory, which is supported and very much driven by um, and uh, senior Caucasian senior population, um, they asked, well, you know, what do you think about uh, people, you know, non-native people telling native stories? Do you think that's acceptable? And I said, no, 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 no. And then that and then they they just wouldn't have it. Like they, they just kept coming back to me with questions, but what if? But in all these different scenarios, all these gray areas that they wanted to introduce into the answer that I had already given them. And I just thought, look, look I, I get it. You, you don't want to hear no, so don't ask. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen and it's happening still. Um, Canada Council, for example, uh, will not, they've made a, um, a, a context brief. They've, they've penned a context brief uh, that speaks about, you know, funding, um, uh, go or having, they stand by the idea that, uh, you know, you have to um, have a, a authentic Indigenous voice uh, in, as part of, you know, for publishers, if you're, if you're supporting an Indigenous author, then, you know, it's up to you as the publisher to vet uh, those authors and not to perpetuate this idea of that Indigenous people need to be written about by other and, um, and if they don't comply, then they don't get the increase in their annual funding. 
So, you know, put money uh, into the, you know, throw money into the mix and that really drives the point home. And sadly, that's how it, how it's done. But I, anyway, I hope all of those points <laughs> add up to something as we, as we move along in this conversation. Thank you, Janet. Um, yeah, I remember some of those conversations about, uh, about who get, who gets to tell, who gets to tell our stories and, you know, you know, and people claiming, you know, reaching for some pretty sketchy indigenous ancestry to justify telling stories. And I don't know, I am Anishinaabeg and there are Anishinaabeg stories I don't feel like I can tell because I grew up a long way from home, right? I mean, I, my family is all up in Northwestern Ontario. I was raised um, by my mom's German Ukrainian family down here in Niagara. Um, I thought I was it, right? <laughs> I thought I was the last dodo in Ontario. I, I thought all the Indians lived out West somewhere. And I don't know, maybe in teepees or something. I don't know, it was the seventies. Um, I learned how to be Indian by watching, you know, we're talking about stories by watching Bonanza, by watching Little House on the Prairie. You know, those were the things. And then when I toured the Woodland Institute and we saw the room, you know, where the kids hung out, um, you know, in this in the 60s, it had been kind of transformed into the Woodland Institute was formerly known as a mush hole. It's a residential school um, in Brant and um, they do tours and they're, they're preserving the building as a historical space. And we kind of glommed onto a tour there and we went into the one room and they said, oh, you know, and in the 60s, this was transformed into like um, a lounge area where the kids would just kind of hang out and watch TV. And it occurred to me that at the same time as they were watching, like these kids in residential school were learning how to be Indians the same way I was in my white family you know, because I had pictures of my dad, but I was an infant, right, when I'd have ongoing relationship with him. So, so the, just to say that even within, like, our, our identities are complicated. I am Nishnabig, but I don't feel like there's stories I can tell, because that's not my experience. Um, so when I, you know, when I write about my experience, I'm very clear that this is my experience. And these are things that I have learned in relationship with other people. And so I can share that as things that I have learned, but that's not my experience. So that kind of brings us actually to uh, becoming good ancestors, which was a really interesting chapter, I thought. Um, and the one, one of the things that I really took from it was this idea of transformation of loss, that we have lost so much. In some ways, we have literally lost our ancestors. They're resting in museums. And some of them, they don't even know where they came from, so they can't send them back. Like there's, there's no community to send the bones back to because they don't know what community the bones came from. So there's ancestors that are just, and, and other relatives, right? There's ceremonial items who are also relatives that are you know, in, the, in, the, in these basements and in people's living rooms. They found that guy who had all kinds of stuff. Remember that old missionary guy found a few years ago? His house was just full of that kind of stuff. And so that loss is real, but that's not our only story. And I always love Daniel throughout this whole book. You keep doing that. You keep acknowledging the loss and then transforming it into, into, into something, you know, into something better so that you know, so that we are not just our loss. And could you talk about that a little bit, the way becoming good ancestors transforms loss into possibility? 
I don't know if I would say it transforms loss. It recognizes these things, right? Um, and I think that for me, that's so much of the, of the learning that I've had over my life is that it's not, if you, if you just say, you know, we're, we're defiant, we're, you know, our nations are strong and don't acknowledge the heavy weight of that loss. I think you, you do violence. Um, but if you only focus on that loss, you don't see the really important work that people are doing to restore languages and to restore relations and to strengthen connections to land. Um, and I think it's, it's hard, right? Like there, it, there's a back and forth of that, that, you know, sometimes I'm more optimistic than at other times. Um, and I, I think it, there's a, there's a push and pull there between acknowledging and, and grieving losses while also not only kind of sitting in, in that grief, um, to the, to the point where you're not actually kind of carrying forward in, in the work that people need to do. And that's where I think a lot of our stories have been really, really, really important um, in reminding us about what we have lost and what we're still, what we're still losing uh, and kind of the, the continuing challenges, but also saying, you know, here, here is how people are working really, really hard to make things better. And here are where people are doing some exciting things and making space for people to try new things and, and reminding us that indigenous peoples have always been super creative um, and have been able to kind of take challenges, but also just new technologies and do really amazing, awesome things with them. I mean, I'm, I'm a language learner and it, you know, it's the internet that has made that possible because I don't live in Oklahoma. Um, and especially during COVID, like it's amazing what is possible. You know, and some, you know, one of my teachers is, is quite young and another teacher is an elder. Um, and it's, it's something that the Cherokee Nation has done, has invested a huge amount in, is that creative possibilities of new technology. But we've always been those people. I and mean, that's not the stereotype. I mean, the stereotype is that we're, we're completely technologically averse, but we've always been really adaptive in that way. And that to me is really exciting, is that we're able to, to do new things and bring old stories, give, old stories renewed life through new technologies and through new possibilities without throwing away the others. You know, it's that very incorporative process um, that acknowledges where we came from and, and where we're going and who, who is there with us both in body as, in, as well as in spirit. Ishkaya and Joy, you guys are both nodding. So I'm gonna let whichever one of you unmutes first. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw like put your arms. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> um, it was interesting because um, I'm writing a profile on a dancer, and so and throughout their piece, um, you know, there was spoken word poetry and from Asada Shakur, and one of the lines was um, "weapons of mass creation," and that is kind of that stuck with me. I was like, yes, right. And I know a lot of people have been feeling. I mean, certainly myself has been feeling. I like just totally dragged down by this ongoing pandemic and the last four years, the last. 200 years, past 500 years. And 
we really need to create, I think, in order, you know, we need to recognize the past, but I also really love the creative energy within Indigenous communities and what happens when we get together with other communities as well, right? And so, I mean, I'm Afro-Indigenous, so I am the combination of two massively amazing, you know, groups of people. And so, um, I can listen to powwow music and then think of a blues song and how it would be nice. I know there's a wonderful singer, um, you know, Kazi Ogishida, and she makes this music that just combines everything. And it's amazing. And it's going to be a powerful legacy to our future generations because, you know, like you, Patty, I grew up far away from, you know, my nation and I grew up in Toronto. I'm, I'm in Scarborough again. <laughs> so, but yeah, but I got to grow up with many nations. And so it's just kind of, I grew up with strong women seeing what we create together and even you know and I grew up in poverty I grew up like with massive oppression coming down and every which way form but things were still created so I love you know the fact that like you know we reclaim through our language we and then we recreate you know our new reality as well as um what am I trying to say as well as reviving, you know, our past as well. And so it's just constantly kind of living together, moving forward together. And I, it's just not a static version of time. It's like just kind of bringing it all forward. And I'm kind of rambling as I'm thinking and my brain is going wild because of all the great thoughts here. So <laughs> I'm gonna let someone else carry on and, you know, hopefully make some more sense than I am. <laughs> I love that weapons of mass creation. That is amazing. I love that. That's so beautiful. Now, I was actually thinking too about um, the resilience of our languages and how um, how they're they're so creative. In it's it's like it's built into the language itself, right? If we don't have a word for it. You just describe what that thing does, and then there's there's your word for it. I mean, computers, you know, didn't exist when Anishinaabemowin was was kind of congealing itself a few thousand years ago. But we have a word for it. We have words for pens. We have words for chairs because these are the things we just describe what things do, and we describe how they are are actors or acted upon, right? Um, and and I think. Like I think about how, like how powerful must a language and therefore a way of thinking be if a thousand years ago and today, these are still, there's still a, a continuity, it may not be in exactly the same form. There may be dialectical changes. There may be, you know, added words, some lost words, but how, um, how incredible are these ways that at least there is a continuity of thousands of years when, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that English can say that as a language and yet here we are all using it. <laughs> now that's kind of what was going through my head. Well, when you were talking about the, the creative capacity, so we have a language uh, consortium who every year come up with a list of new words for 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 some of those things and in 2019 I just pulled it up like, like there are words for battery charger beef jerky um, boomerang like this whole list of very random words but, but, but so many many um, and it's it's really awesome to see like 
and and I don't know the language well enough to know kind of how they put these together, but like certificate of acknowledgement. Like we actually have a word for that. And I don't I don't know why, why that came up in the context that it did. Um, and computer, we have that one as well. So that that ability to really to create language that's alive today, community college, right? And and to make it as relevant and, and meaningful. And I think that just speaks to the creative capacity um, and the, the kind of knowing creative capacity, right? Like we, we, we need a word. So what is the word? And people get together in a group and they hash it out. They have a conversation, you know, language speakers are like, here, let's do this. And they together it's, it's created as a, as a community and then gifted back to the community. That, that thrills me to no end. I'm a, I'm not good at the language. I'm still very much a baby, but it's that I find really encouraging because that's also that's what our storytellers do too janet did you have something i saw you nodding along no i'm i'm waiting for your next cue oh <laughs> well the other thing you know in talking about ancestors you know daniel talked about talks about kind of that space between the lip between the living and the dead um you know kind of our our connections and that that relationship there that we have and then that made me think of Neil when we were talking and I had asked him he'd given me like this very short two-word bio maybe not two words um and I said well could you talk a little bit more about the themes of your writing you know the theme the themes of your work and, and he'd made a comment about how you know death and dying always seems to feature in all of in all of his work so then that made me think of Neil when I was reading this chapter and the things that you were writing about um in terms of our ancestors who are still very much present. So Neil, I just wanted, if you wanted to talk a little bit about how that shows up in your writing, because I don't know, I've only read your, I've only read your one novel, so I'm a bad friend. <laughs> um, I don't know, I, so even as a small child, I was very aware of things changing and um, and, and things sort of passing away that things, I, I call it my sense of never again, that there were things that were happening. Like we tore down a part of, just a part of uh, an old barn on our farm. And, um, and I suddenly realized one day I couldn't remember what was, what we kept in there or what it really looked like or what it was like to be in that, that room that was no longer there. And it just made me really sad. So I don't know, I think I'm just sort of uh, wired for grief, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I just completed a new novella that uh, started out as one thing and sort of became about a passing of a way of life uh, as a sort of a subtext that runs through it. Um, it it's, it's just sort of comes up over and over, I, I seem to notice what is missing. And maybe some of that is because I'm, uh, I'm the youngest of seven and I'm the very youngest of seven. So I am disconnected from like grandparents. I didn't know my grandparents. They were dead before I knew them. Uh, I was talking about family. I've been to seminary, so we talked about family systems. <laughs> you know, I was talking to a friend about family systems, and uh, and I said something about what I didn't know about, like my mother's family. 
And she says, well, right there, you're already disconnected from your previous generation. Um, and so I guess now what I'm doing now that, you know, people are, you know, there are people not here to ask anymore about some things. And some of what my fiction is doing now is filling in gaps. Um, um, there's, there's a line in a river runs through it about uh, the father asks the son, you like telling stories that are true, don't you? And he says, yes, I like telling stories that are true. And he says, well, when you're done writing your true stories, make up some people and, and then you'll begin to understand what happened and why. Um, that it's the, the imagination of filling in the gaps and, and trying to find, the way I interpreted the line is that when you start to fill in the gaps, you start having empathy for what happened and why. Um, at least that's what's happening for me. And, and yeah, there's almost always someone dead or dying in my stories. Um, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't plan it. It's just like, oh, here's the dead person. I didn't even mean to plan that. Um, I just kind of want to bounce that over to Daniel and get your reflections on that. You know, I, I feel very, very similar. Like I, I, I'm a deeply nostalgic person. I'm, I don't like change. Um, even though my life has been so much change. Um, but what's, what's been interesting, like one of the things for me growing up, I was, my dad was significantly older than my mom. He's 21 years older than my mom. Um, and was the same age as my friend's grandfather. So there was always kind of this specter of death around him. And he lived to be 90. And it was a really, it was, you know, it was hard when he passed away, but it wasn't as, as like crushing as I expected in some ways, because uh, I don't remember who, who said it, but, you know, all of a sudden he became an ancestor. So he didn't, he didn't, you know, he was my dad who was still like, he was an ancestor now. And, you know, the ancestors are, are with us. And there, there was just kind of this moment. It didn't feel like it was a change, but it was also a really comforting knowledge to know that he, he wasn't just gone. That, and he wasn't just my ancestor. He's the ancestor for my, my, you know, my brothers and my nephews. And I think and now that these, you know, we have different stories about him and, you know, some of those stories are really funny. And my husband and I will just kind of, I'll say something and I'll sound just like my dad. And then that starts a round of storytelling um, where, you know, and, and my dad was, could be cantankerous and difficult and um, challenging in his own ways, but he, he still lives on in those stories. And I've had, you know, I've had other people in my life die, but there's just a certain way that, story really has become more profound and powerful to me in this really intimate way because I see the way, yeah, and of course I'm still sad and I still have my, my moments, but there's so much more, he's so much more present than I was afraid he was gonna be after he was gone. Um, and it's through those stories that we've, been, that we've been telling. And then of course you start reflecting on all the other ways that stories exist in our lives and it's kind of weird to be, you know, I've studied story as a scholar for so long, and I'm only now figuring out a little bit of what it means, right? Like, 
I knew so much more back in when I didn't know anything. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I'm so much more ignorant now, but it's so much more. Well, I used to think I knew something, right? Uh, but I'm learning so much more as I get older. And, and I'm learning that I, I'm, I don't need to be quite as afraid as I was. I, I can riff off that if, if that's okay. Um, uh, talking about, you know, story, the importance of story. Of course, story is very powerful. We've got, you know, people say we're born with story in our veins and uh, that sort of thing. It's quite inherent. But um, uh, I remember I was at the BAM Center and I was at a taking, doing part of a residency, uh, a non-native residency it was um, poets, a poets, a poetry residency. And uh, and uh, it, the, the question was posed to our, our group, uh, what do you think the future of literature is all, all about? You know, what, what do you think the future of that is? Getting back to your, you know, the title of your book, Daniel. Um, and I, I remember being very kind of like a, very spontaneous about my answer. And that was, well, as an indigenous person, I'm not so sure I'm concerned about the future of literature. I kind of am hoping that the literature is gonna kind of bring us back full circle to storytelling. And, and, but that's not to be dismissive of literature um, because I still see, you know, as a writer myself, I still see the, the page as being a very sacred place. Uh, you know, everything kind of gets born there. Um, and now it does. Uh, and, and, and not to be dismissive, but maybe it's, it's this, we're in a time where we're gonna see these hybrids, the adjoining of, you know, adjoining of the page and adjoining of the storytelling and, and then, you know, whatever gets born out of that combination. And we're, we, are, we are seeing that. I mean, I, myself, I work in um, video poetry and, you know, I really, you know, a dream of mine is to make a feature film with just poetry and, you know, poetry carrying the, the narrative of the, of the, and I think it's possible. And, you know, all of these other kind of collaborations and combinations that, that can be born out of, out of um, you know, what we choose to do with story now. And, and carry it into the future. And I just, I get very, very excited, very inspired when I start to think uh, like that. Um, and I just wanted to say something too about the idea of, you know, we're talking a lot about politics. Um, and that certainly is something that as indigenous people, we have to, it's, it's part of our reality, uh, you know, like it or hate it, it's, it's part of our reality. And I had the, the great opportunity of interviewing John Trudell uh, one time when I had a radio show and he was in um, like near Tacoma, Washington. I went down when I was living on the West Coast, I went down to because I knew he was going to be at this event. And um, anyway, we were talking about, um, you know, we, what's your relationship with politics, John? I was trying to tell, ask him about what's his relationship with the with the AIM song and politics and things like that. And he said, listen, let me tell you something. Um, he goes, we, you know, we can stay in that place and we, we do, we have to pay attention to our politics. That's a fact. He goes, but think of the energy uh, that you, that you participate in when, when you're, when you're, when you stay in, in the idea and the conversations of politics and then, and then the difference between the energy uh, when you engage in conversations around creativity. And I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, the idea of being creative uh, tonight and how important that is. And yes, absolutely. One is, is an energy that depletes and the other is an energy that, that kind of like is a juggernaut. 
you know, it kind of gr grows and keeps growing with itself. And so that blew my mind. And I had, you know, so I, and I had to kind of sit and, and walk it off for a couple of hours after talking to John Trudell, because he did, he blew my mind. Um, so, so, so those are like, you know, in terms of um, literature and story and, and things like that. And, you know, and uh, again, I, now I'm mentoring at, at, a, at a program at the BAMP Center for Indigenous Storytellers. And it's so wonderful, you know, to uh, see what the what the new storytellers are are coming up with in terms of presentation and uh, storytelling style and things like that. So I think that I think that you know it's a big world, it's a big huge world, and there's lots of room for all of these different versions of of the same thing. Um, you know, we're never going to get back uh, what we had in terms of you know, you know, traditional. Uh, things is storytelling and traditional um, ceremony. We're just, it just, I just don't see it. You know, it's not going to be what it once was. It's a growing, living, evolving thing. And, uh, and, you know, our participation in it now feeds into that. That's what I've got to say. Well, it was great because that segues us really well into how we live together because that's, you know, Daniel writes in there about imagining what's, what exists beyond the apocalypse. Like, you know, we're so used to apocalyptic film and TV shows being about the big disaster. And then, you know, when really what's important is, well, how do we, because I mean, as indigenous peoples, we have experienced that disaster, right? You know, as you know, and even settlers to us have experienced, you know, the separation from their own history and trying to replant themselves in this place. And some of the choices that they've made in that replanting have, have you know, been pretty destructive and harmful. Um, but there's consequences within settlers for that as well in terms of their own dislocation and severed relationships and trying to, you know, trying to grasp for things um, that maybe aren't theirs or that maybe, you know, need to be accessed access through relationships so it's imagining and I think Daniel when I first met you on Twitter that was your handle was imagine otherwise <laughs> and then um, I don't know I, I think the first time when I read the book it just kind of skated past me but this time I caught it <laughs> and it's just that capacity for creativity and imagination is just so powerful so um, I don't know Daniel if you want to speak to that or if somebody wants to quickly unmute themselves and jump on it well, I can, I can just briefly, I think, you know, that one of the things I've always been really fascinated by as a teacher is when, especially kind of Euro Western students would say something like, well, I don't have culture. And like, I, I'm not from Canada. I can tell you folks, you have culture. It's a very different kind of culture than than I grew up in, in a, in, you know, in a largely white community. Um, Y'all have culture. You just don't see it. You know, you see culture as belonging to those strange people over there, but actually you have, you have a lot of culture and, you know, some of it's really beautiful and some of it's quite harmful. Um, and so that, that, I think to be able to get along and to figure out how we can be in, in good relationship with each other, I think people have to be able to see, you know, how this, the harms in this relationship are not just harms on indigenous people, although I think indigenous people definitely bear the brunt of it. Um, but, you know, indigenous people and black people and uh, 
you know, a whole range of marginalized peoples have had to pay the heavy price, but we all are impoverished by impoverished relations. Um, you know, I, I would love to not be wounded by, you know, you know, what, you know, there are lots of problems with the inauguration, you know, whatever, but, you know, it feels like it's kind of a hopeful moment. And then they sing, this land is your land. This land is my land. I'm like, really, really? This could have been a moment and you, hmm. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a really minor kind of trivial point, but I think it's, an, it's, it's, it speaks to that thing that, you know, think what we could have if we could all just be in loving kindness with one another, if we didn't need to have particular walls, which are there for good reasons, um, if we could be honest about the histories that we've inherited and the violences that we've visited upon one another, if we didn't have that, think about what we could accomplish. And just think about how, how liberated we could be. And I like it when people are happy. I like it when people are loved. It makes everybody better. Um, so I think it's it's not just something that that impacts the others. It's it's something that impacts everybody, and not just humans. I mean, the impoverishment of our relations are also impoverishing the experiences of our other than human re relatives in major ways. It's like that ability to be vulnerable. And it's like, it's such a scary thing, but you know, when it goes well, it's also so beautiful. And I was in a meeting with some friends and some colleagues and it went really south. I mean, it went really anti-black really fast. And I was just like, well, okay, I'm just gonna, and it was a social meeting and it was between a bunch of people who didn't really understand that it was lateral violence, despite the fact that they were all equity fighters. And I was just like, I don't know. And one of them, it wasn't my, my friend didn't contribute to this, a dear friend of mine, um, but we were both kind of processing it and I processed it over the week and I was in a really grumpy mood afterwards. And then she named it for me. And cause I'm like, I'm not sure I felt about that meeting. She named it for me. I'm like, oh my God, thank you for one, not having to, not making me explain to you, like you get it. And to just like allowing me to be vulnerable and I was literally on the phone crying because it was just such a wonderful moment but you know just that vulnerability that you can be with people and to have that understanding sort of thing and I see it especially in creative spaces right and collaborative spaces like you need to be vulnerable you need to I mean I work with children and youth so we often work in multidisciplinary disciplinary teams so it's like teachers principals whoever right social workers and we all have to kind of check our ego at the door if we're going to you know actually come up with a good solution and you can tell when the solutions are all ego-filled because they're usually really crappy solutions that don't work for the kids and so and I learned that you know in one of my early placements thank goodness so no ego just check it at the door figure out a solution and dropping that ego is being vulnerable. And I just, I love that kind of beautiful vulnerability and that being kind allows for that. So there's such a power in being kind so that people can say, oh, I've made a mistake. Oh, I'm stepping on, you know, but you know, it's okay because people aren't going to like 
chop my heads off, you know, they might call me into account, but you know, it's not going to be brutal either. So again, I'm meandering. I am so sorry. <laughs> Robin, I'm just going to pull you back in. You've been so quiet. Um, this is just making me think of some of the work that you do with the students in terms of challenging, um, you know, some of the social activities that they that they plan or, you, you know, because that, that takes relationship to be able yeah. to challenge people, whether you're challenging other teachers in the way that they're teaching and the materials they're using, or whether you're challenging students in terms of what activity they want to do that sounds fun, but is actually not that you know, not that great. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm sure. And I hope my internet stays because I think it's been a little bit wonky right now. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've been trying to, and you know, as a settler colonizer, I worry very much about uh, the idea of appropriating and um, telling to tell and, and things like that. So uh, when I work with uh, students council kids, they've been they, they come up with ideas of things that they'd like to do. And uh, I've asked them to think about, you know, who might be excluded by this particular activity? And um, is there something that we could do to maybe make sure that it's accessible to everyone and that it's respectful and looking at just different um, lenses, I guess, for, for what they're doing. Um, but I've also been fortunate to be able to bring them to workshops and different things where um, I haven't been the one doing the teaching, but I've allowed them to hear the stories from different people. And that I think has been, you know, amazing. And one of the things that I find the hardest with COVID is that I don't have that opportunity to do that anymore right now. And so I'm kind of torn and I, I've been looking a little bit at the chat and there have been some questions about this as well. So I, I don't know if people have these, have any ideas about this, but um, how do, how do non-Indigenous people bring Indigenous stories to students um, when they're not ours to tell? So um, I guess the, the topic, the title of the book, Indigenous Literatures Matter, they, they, they do because that allows me to introduce other stories without appropriating, I guess. So, I don't know. So I don't know if you have any ideas about that, how I can tell stories that aren't mine or make them accessible, I guess. Well, one thing okay I'd say, just... Janet has a, oh yeah, no, please, please go jump in. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to step over that space. Um, so one thing that, um, that we've done out this way in Peterborough is um, all of our grade 11 students, all of them, not, there's, there's no option now. Our students have to take a course that's coded NBE rather than English. So it's still an English course, but they are all reading Indigenous writers for the entirety of their grade 11 English course. There's no Shakespeare. There's no actually comparing Indigenous writers and then a Shakespeare or comparing, you know, Indigenous writers and non-Indigenous writers. It's just, this is who you're reading this semester. And it's, um, it, it kind of made me think of that, that question, how do we learn to live together? We learn to live together by listening to each other's stories too, right? 
Um, and, and by creating space for others to tell their stories. Um, and so that was, that was one of the things that we decided to do was to create some space. Um, and we were a little worried at first. We were thinking like, okay, are, are parents gonna get really upset? Are they gonna think to themselves, uh, well, my, my kid's not going to be ready for that grade 12 English and then moving into university, they're not gonna be ready for you know, all of these things because um, they're not reading the canon for, for one semester. Um, but I think I would, you know, um, I would I would push back on that and say that the the breadth and depth of indigenous writing, and it is it is not just on par, but in many in in my estimation anyway, um, in terms of relating to the students who are right in front of them and relating to their stories and them being able to see themselves, whether they're indigenous or not, but in a breadth of different stories, um, brings them into story a little bit better than, you know, something that was, that was written 500, 600 years ago. I mean, that has its place too. And also for one semester of, you know, a 14 year <laughs> student career from junior kindergarten through to the end of grade 12, it's not gonna do them any harm. I think our board is doing that as well because I had heard whispers of that. So I'm sure it was the grade 11. Um, but then the question is, so you'll have, do you have indigenous teachers teach that? You know, we don't have representation, not nearly enough representation. No, we don't. So, so what we did, um, knowing that, knowing that um, Indigenous teachers are underrepresented proportionally in our school board, because we have, depending on the criteria that you use, between 10 and 14% of our student body is Indigenous here. Um, and we certainly don't have that number of teachers. So, um, so what we did instead is we did some, um, some fairly intense um, cultural competency training with the teachers. We pulled them all out and we did cultural competency training with all those grade 11 teachers. Um, and then we did a second round of professional development where we showed them how to teach this course in as best a decolonial way as they possibly could. So you can't expect teachers who are brand new to this whole idea of, you know, decolonial pedagogy and culturally responsive and relevant pedagogy to, you know, knock it out of the park on their own. Um, so we provided them with, with lesson plans, with different, um, you know, rubrics, course outlines, the whole thing. It's basically, at this point, we had a kind of a summer writing group that created a take and teach, but we also did the pedagogy piece with them where you can't, cause you can't teach indigenous literature, um, at least to my mind anyway, in the same way as you would teach European literature, right? Um, just like you can't teach indigenous languages the same way that you would teach a European language. It doesn't work that way. Um, so what we did 
is we we sat down with the teachers and we said, okay, well, you need to use a different pedagogy. Here's the pedagogy that we would like you to try. We're going to have this really heavy conversation for the next three days and you're going to feel like you were put through the ringer but trust us please come along this come along this journey with us because it's going to be worth it in the end um and it it really was and because we had done the pilot at, at one school and then kind of rolled it out worldwide um but the the teachers themselves started reflecting on how they were teaching other courses and they're like you know i need to I need to go back and change how I'm doing things because I'm not behaving. And you know, one one of the teacher, the teachers said to us, like, I'm not in good relationship with the students in the my other three classes, right? I have to go back and fix how I'm doing things. I have to change the way I approach everything now. Um, so to me, that makes the whole exercise a win, right? That's really cool. I don't even know what else to say to that. That's the fact that they, you, you know, you, you had them teaching Indigenous literatures, you taught them how to teach Indigenous literatures, you know, in a different way, you know, you know, a different way of thinking and approaching the material. And then they took that and saw the deficits in the other, in the other work that they were doing. And that's, that's just so, I mean, that's the power of, of story and the power of telling story in our own voice, our own stories, in you know, in, in our in our own way, and I'm just, you know, trying to be mindful of the time, um, because yeah, we're coming up on an hour and a half, and I knew it would seem like a long time, and also really, really short. <laughs> so um, yeah, so there was there there was a poem in here, a bit of writing from Leanne Simpson, and I bookmarked it and I'm not finding it. But anyway, she talks about picking things up and that we're just going to, you know, we're gonna plant the little seed and we're gonna pick this thing up and then we're gonna visit the elder and we're gonna speak the language. And day by day, we're just gonna make things a little bit better until things are better. And sometimes it just feels so overwhelming, right? Like all this loss and the sadness and, and everything, it feels so overwhelming. But little by little, when my, my son's building a garden for us out, out there and, you know, and little by little, he does a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I had strawberries, like <laughs> he had planted ever bearing strawberries and he's transformed this clay garden into this beautiful, um, he calls it a lasagna bed. Um, but, you know, it's all those, all the, all those layers of, um, all, you know, all, the, all those layers of goodness that create nutrients. And he's such a little nerd, you know, he finds a bug and mine's like, ah, stop visiting me. And he's like, no, what do you eat? What, what other plants do you need? Are you a good bug? And, you know, so he's all looking at all those interconnected relationships. And I mean, we're going to get into that in a couple of months, um, you know, with the books that with the books that I've chosen for that month. But what I kind of like to do as we wrap things up is just kind of go around, you know, go around the circle and just have everybody just have kind of an opportunity to, I don't know, to speak to what this conversation has meant to them in terms of being human, being relatives, thinking about becoming ancestors and how we think about our ancestors and how we live together in this moment, how we, I mean, we skipped right over ruptures, um, 
but also, you know, how we learn, how we learn from those ruptures and how, how we keep the fire going. So kind of what aspect of that really captured you and then that'll get us to, uh, that'll get us to our hour and a half. So I don't know, can I unmute you or do we just, just unmute yourselves? I'll go ahead and speak up so the settler doesn't have the last word. Uh, the, uh, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I'm flabbergasted that I'm even in this room, this room. Um, and it's, uh, again, the balls have been bouncing so much uh, ideas about, you know, story and relation and good stories, bad stories, weaponizing relation. Uh, uh, there's a lot to carry out of this room, and I and I thank you. I can volunteer to go. Um, for me, it's just it's very timely because I just you know it came up upon a time of just thinking about being depleted by the politics and then what is going to fill me right now, and it's the creation. And so, and it's just, it happens on so many levels, whether it's interpersonal, whether it's just coming from within a person, whether it's becoming from, it's coming from our non-human relations, things are continually creating. And so, um, and I think that will ultimately sustain us. And so it's kind of a, I don't know, a threshold moment for me at this point, because I'm like, you know, a lot of people, like a lot of people spending the winter trying to figure out how are we going to move forward after so much awful? And so, yeah. And I think this conversation has like, you know, solidified that creation is creativity. Creation is what is key to kind of moving forward and pretty much every level of my little bubble anyhow. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when I was, first approached about sitting in this conversation um I was I was struck pretty speechless thinking to myself oh my gosh what are you going to say with all those with all those folks up there um but I I I think um I think Joy when you were talking about um this refilling that is necessary, right? What is what is going to fill you back up after after this period of being depleted? And that's where we're coming to in the seasons as well, right? Where we're coming into that time um, when when things start to flow again, right? And when the waters do get filled back up. Um, and so, yeah, when I was as I was reading as I was reading the book. Um, I was, I was reflecting on that and reflecting on how, um, how this is, this, this idea of telling stories, because right now we're in the storytelling period until, you know, until that spring. So this period of telling stories um, is, is what fills you back up again for the work ahead, right? It's, it's sort of inter, like it's, it's, interrelated with um with the land and with the seasons that are happening regardless of the fact that we're kind of locked in our houses right now um 
the seasons are still turning and it's still it's still that winter time it's still that time to tell those stories and and fill our our spirits back up again yeah i just i'll just go ahead then um uh i like how, how like patty how you said um you know how, how do we uh keep our fires burning and i think about like this um i'm not a speaker but a mohawk term that i heard in the language in the ganyagahega language uh that that uh, translates to um our fires are connected and so for for um mohawk people ganyagahega people uh Haudenosaunee people were you know there's people in Ganawagi there's people Akwesasne and um you know uh, Six Nations and down in you know Allegheny and there's Mohawk people everywhere you know but our fires are connected and to me the the symbolism of fire is is the creation is creating is this creative energy um and so I think in terms of you know uh uh speaking about relationships inter personal relationships or what have you um if we can if we can find other people's fires that kind of like burn in a good way that you know that you can feel warm with um then that's a good way to kind of measure i guess the that, that connectedness um and the uh you know finding your 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 own fire your your, your fires and i and i wanted to speak about um uh, 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 like the, the, we're still longhouse. There's longhouse ceremony happening on the reserve here, and I have um, I have masks. I have masks, medicine masks, and you know I can tell when big house, when longhouse rather is happening because those masks kind of like they click away, you know, and they kind of vibrate a little more than they usually do. Uh, so, so though, so though, even though you know, though they're they they're connected, they're they're connected to the fires at the at the longhouse, um, kind of thing. So, you know, I think it's it's our responsibility too to be aware of uh, of of those things, of those uh, kind of um, energies that aren't so apparent that keep us connected. That's I think that's what I want to say about that. Is like we still are connected, you know, even with telepathically, we really are more so than we probably want to admit. <laughs> and that's another reason to stay kind in your, th in your thoughts as well. <laughs> I'm just really struck by the generosity of the, the thinking and the comments and, and the work, not just kind of about here, but also the work that people are doing in their lives and in their communities and, and, you know, in their disciplines and in it that's a really heartening thing to see and to to feel that generosity here um you know and that everybody came together to talk about this book but took that, that conversation in such wonderful um places and i you know thoughts are pinging for me too i'm learning a lot too so i just i just want to thank all of you for this and to thank you patty as well for for not only for featuring the book but featuring these really awesome thinkers and doers, people who are doing good things in the world. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you. One of the things that I book and about our conversations is the focus on doing things. And I am much more a doer than a talker. So uh, thank you for having me today. I am learning a lot and I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you guys so much. This was 
a completely impulsive thing and that's just basically the whole story of my life <laughs> and so i really appreciate your all generosity in um in agreeing to uh come on this adventure with me today and i may tap you to come back another month <laughs> because it was just um i don't know daniel you're one of my favorite humans i just really enjoy every moment I have an opportunity to talk with you. So, uh, and we had a lively chat, which really made me so happy to see lots of people. I was so terrified that nobody would show up, um, but we did, we had a really good chat and uh, Janessa uh, took care of the chat for us and kind of, you know, bringing forward questions. And so I just really want to kind of give a shout out to her in terms of, you know, for, for the work that she was doing over there, keeping the conversation going. So yay, thank you so much, Janessa. And uh, we will be back in uh, one month. So the third, uh, the third uh, Wednesday of February, we're going to be talking about history. Um, Nick Estes of um, Our History is the Future uh, will be with us, as well as Tia Miles, uh, who is an uh, African um, academic and writes about Afro and Black and um, Afro-Indigenous history in uh, in the U.S. I've been reading um, uh, Topi. Uh, Fredera can, oh, I should have practiced her name. But anyway, she, she really challenging me to think about, about what indigeneity is and about being indigenous and who is indigenous. And one of the things, Daniel, that I loved about your book was the way you drew in, because so often when we talk about indigenous, we think about North America indigenous, maybe Central America. Um, but the way you drew in indigenous authors from all over the place was just, I just liked that so much. So anyway, so Tolp has really been challenging me on that. Uh, so I'll be working through the book list to make sure that I'm including Black and Afro-Indigenous authors, <laughs> because that's an important. Our histories are so connected, are so are so connected. Um, so thank you again so much. Thank you to everybody uh, who's been watching, and we'll see you again um, in February. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Ambe streams live throughout 2021 on WBK on the third Wednesday of every month. Episodes are archived there as highlights and released as podcasts to those who are subscribed to Medicine for the Resistance. Medicine for the Resistance is a podcast I co-host with Carrie Goring, where we explore themes similar to the conversation you just heard. The Colonial Project wants to control how and if we see each other. Our work is in investigating the stories we were not told so that we do. You can support this work at Patreon slash pay your rent or by buying us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can find out more about me and the things I do at daanis.ca where I post transcripts for these episodes as well as thoughts on my blog you can sign up for my newsletters you can find me on twitter at g-i-n-d-a-a-n-i-s if you want to talk about the things you've heard thank you to pearly Papineau for her editing skills and liz barkley for the transcripts <laughs>